Well, it's a happy new year. Who's round? And I've got another new series writer. And we're just going to sit down and talk. Well, hello, everybody. I haven't needed to set the scene uh, with this particular gentleman because he's, I think, the first time I'm interviewing somebody who's a Who's Round listener or has been in the past. So, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name's Peter Harness, and I guess you're talking to me about Doctor Who because uh, I've been writing for it for a couple of years. Yes, and aren't you kind? I have to say, we, it's, it, we often talk about how horrid the internet is when you're involved with Doctor Who and forums and things like that. But actually, this nice man who was a writer kept saying nice things about Who's Round, and then suddenly it was announced that he was writing Doctor Who. So I sort of knew you internet-wise before your known name had been associated with Doctor Who because you listened to Who's Round and said nice things about it, so thanks. Well, I mean, that's how I got to do it in the first place, you know, just by kind of being <laughs> relentlessly sycophantic to people online until they... Uh... That's all they came to. I don't. Th- I don't think being nice is being sycophantic. Um, so um, when you so obviously in listening to Who's Round, you um, that shows a certain level of dedication. So you're a you're a proper fan. Well, I suppose so, as much as anybody is. Um, yes, I've uh, I've loved it ever since I I can remember. Really, it's uh, it's it's one of my first memories. Uh, you, you know, I think most of my first memories are of watching Doctor Who. So, and I've loved it ever since. And um, uh, I think it's probably kind of like like a lot of people, like most of us probably who write for it nowadays. It, it's probably one of the um, one of the single most important factors in us becoming writers or doing mm. what we do. I think that's a fairly common thread through through everybody who. Uh, Who's associated with it sure. these days? But also, actually, you know, in in my business, you meet a lot of stand-ups who are, uh, are Doctor Who fans and other writers, but not all of them get to to work on the show. So, what was your what was your path to getting to getting the gig in the first place? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I I think when it was announced, when it was initially coming back in um, in two thousand and five. Uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to get in get in spitting this different uh, distance of um, having anything on it then, um, but I remember going for a meeting with someone in BBC Wales, uh, probably during when that first series was on, and a- asking about it, and he kind of he laughed indulgently and said, "Join the queue, mate." Um, so, uh, but I did I did kind of join the queue quietly and. Um, just kept working and uh, building up my credits and um, letting it be known how much I love Doctor Who and I think eventually they caved in and uh, gave me gave me a chance to go and pitch. Um, and interestingly, you don't, I don't think I've ever told you this, I, I um, was at some drinks at the, the BFI, just a social occasion and, and Stephen Moffat happened to be there and I found myself sitting next to him. And um, we were talking about how... I was talking about how unfair it was, I thought, that about demo- how democracy works, that the season finale always gets voted 
best story in the Doctor Who magazine poll because it's always the bells and whistles one and how I felt that things like The Empty Child had missed out, had lost out to... Uh, I was being sick of... Sick of sick of <laughs> I'd lost out to um, Bad Wolf and Parting the Ways and he said, that's not going to happen this year. He said, this is before that season had aired, he said, the Peter Harness episode, that's going to be the runaway, that's going to be the one that everybody's going to love. So, so Moffat, before um, that season had even... was, you know, was... Um, finished was obviously a huge fan of, of the work that you'd done and the episode that was produced so uh, I mean were, were you aware of that the, how, you know what was the reaction when you when you submitted your script and, and did you have to do much to it to get it to the shape where he was so enthusiastic about it to somebody he doesn't know particularly well well I mean of course he, he, you know he he had an, an awful lot to do with it as well um, uh, I mean, the, the first uh, the, the first episode, I think, is reasonably kind of more or less. It's not very different at all from what from what I handed in. It was a bugger to write, uh, because well, they always are, but um, there were there were just so many different things and elements and bits of story and backstory and kind of world building that I wanted to get in that I had to kind of. I had to kind of write my way through before before they started actually kind of gathering into a a coherent forty five minute narrative. But I think once I did that, I handed it in, and I was I was pretty I was pretty pleased with that. I think I was more kind of confident confident about that as a first draft than nearly anything else that I'd put in. And then the second one, the second one was uh, a bit. Bumpier than that, really, because <laughs> I think basically we'd all just we'd all just kind of thought that writing a two we'd I think we'd kind of forgotten that this was a two parter, and so I was just doing the same writing schedule basically that I did for Kill the Moon, and then I think everybody realised that okay oh, no there's there's another forty five minutes of it to go, isn't it? Um, so that was a bit that was a bit more frantic, and a bit more difficult to get right really. Um, because it could have gone, it, it, it could really have gone in an awful lot of different directions, and I did uh, kind of mooch around at it uh, a lot, and um, I didn't have a lot of uh, chances to talk to Stephen about it, because um, uh, I was here and there on on different things and looking after children and things. Um, so it was a bit, it was a bit more kind of. Uh, it was a bit more of a journey of uh, discovery, really. But I think, uh, looking back, I think what I always wanted to explore in in um, in this two-part story was just the notion that people who seem unreasonable may actually be capable of responding to reason, and how nice it would be if you could actually kind of, if you were clever enough whether you could actually kind of talk someone uh, out of doing what they're doing, whether you could have talked Hitler or um, Putin out of, uh, you know, their mindset. Mm. Um, and eventually that, that kind of settled on really the simplest way of doing it, which was having Doctor Who <laughs> standing <laughs> in a room <laughs> delivering, a, delivering a lecture. Well, it's funny that when I asked that question, you thought I was talking about the the Zygon one, where actually it was Kill the Moon. Oh, was it? Said was were brilliant, but um, 
Um, I haven't spoken to him since. I <laughs> he was, he was quite wrong about either. Kill the Moon in the season poll. Then, well, in, but interesting. But I. But the the. The the crux of that seems to be the fact that the moon is an egg. Now I'm not yes. a scientist, so I didn't I didn't see that as remotely controversial. I don't care. I, I don't know if the polarity of the neutron flow can be reversed. It's part of Doctor Who's rich tapestry. Doctor Who to me is about character and adventure. Right. So the fact that the moon's an egg when in real life it's not an egg, I go well. That's as fine. far it's, as we know. As, well, indeed, indeed. But I have but and I've talked to friends about this who get quite cross and go the one with the moon was an egg. And it always seems they don't have anything, any other problem with the story, but they seem to be a sticking point in a show about a man who travels through space and time in a police box and it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. But the moon is an egg. So was that, was that the starting point of the story? And secondly, d- did you anticipate that, that that was the area that would cause the people that have difficulty with the story would cause them to the extent that... Because people have done it on my... Because we're Facebook friends. People have occasionally put on my Facebook thing... Well, what about that one where the moon was an egg and you go, well, thanks very much. <laughs> but it's always, it's not, it, we didn't like this element or that element, it's, it's the concept of the moon being an egg. So when, yes, tell me about the moon being an egg and where that came from and, and, and the fallout from it. Well, I think, I think actually to, there are many and varied things we off about Kill the Moon, but uh, I, I think, yes, probably first and foremost, it is the fact that the moon is an egg. Um, <clears throat> but my kind of... You know, my kind of take on that is that I think that's rather a delightful idea, and um, I think that that's what they thought when I went and pitched it to them, and um, I think it's what a lot of people do think. I mean, I think a lot of people do uh, find uh, find it a rather charming idea, and I know that um, I have a friend who uh, who has a friend who teaches. Um, kind of storytelling and writing to uh, kids in primary schools and he said that that had been their favourite episode of the series because because it was so kind of wonderful to be able to look up into the sky at night and think uh, and think that the moon is an egg whereas I think the people who get kind of annoyed about it look up into the sky at night and think there's that terrible Doctor Who story <laughs> It's like I've kind of graffitied a gigantic kind of and balls all over the moon and totally spoiled it for them. And uh, I'm very sorry for, you know, I'm very sorry for having done that. But uh, I, I think it's probably just, um, it's just the fact that it's there and it's part, it's a knowable part of our world and our universe, and it's suddenly kind of um, immediately unknowable. But I didn't. Um, and actually, I, I, I actually think kind of when people have a go at the episode for being unscientific and blah de blah, I think that's a kind of sublimation of the fact that they just hate the uh, the idea of uh, the moon being an egg. Um, but but I mean, fine, fine, it's fine. I don't. Uh, it was a bit of a shock that that uh, people got so wound up about it. But um, I've I've kind of made my peace with that now. I don't mind it mind it so much. Because I thought, I th- the only thing that worried me during the course of the episode was I thought, well, if the moon, ha- what's going to happen to the moon? And of course you solve that by, it lays another moon. Perfect. So everything, so in the future it will still work because the moon's still there. So, um, as you said, I, I, I think it's a, 
you must have been delighted with the way that Capaldi delivered the line where he goes, the moon's an egg. The moon's that, an egg. With that sort like, of, kind of slightly flirty with a, this is insane, but yeah, I kind of like, like it. Yeah. Um, but other than that, aside from the moon being egg, it's a very traditional, scary characters in a spooky, shadowy place Doctor Who episode. Mm. And I think it looks marvellous. I mean, were you there when it was being shot? Yeah, I was there when they were shooting um, the long, the longer kind of bit at the end, and they, I think when when the spider gets Courtney. But yeah, but I think it just it just takes a big left turn halfway through, and it sets itself out as being something very different to to uh, what you actually uh, get at the end of it. Um, but I like that. I mean, I like. Uh, that's exciting to me. To uh, I, I wouldn't want to tell a kind of completely traditional Doctor Who story. Uh, I think the great thing about Doctor Who is that it's that it's different every week, and it can be extremely different every week. And I think it should be. And I think you should always um, you should always test what it's capable of doing because I think it's pretty much capable of doing anything. And and and. Uh, uh, you need to do that to show that that it's capable of continually reinventing itself and changing and and telling any sort of story. I think when it starts falling into tropes and um, ways of doing things, then uh, then that's probably not such a good thing. Sure. And tell tell me about the press because we've all seen the episode. We don't know what it was it, it was like through the process. So tell me what what is it that when you're working with Stephen Moffat that he may be um, brings or melds or shapes that we can see in the final episode that you go, oh, well, I got there because because of something he suggested or tweaked or pushed or pulled or took out. Uh, with Kill the Moon or yeah. with the... Uh, well, uh, with that one, yeah. Uh, with Kill the Moon, um, I think that I'd... Re- I, I'd I, I handed in a first draft again, which was reasonably similar to what ended up on screen. There was just more... There was more of the astronauts and more of their... Backstory, and I think the Doctor took a more straightforward route into the story. I think he led you. Um, it, the, the Doctor now takes a more straightforward route into the story. He kind of leads you into it uh, quicker. Um, so I think there are a few things which are probably just Doctor Who's storytelling kind of 101 that maybe most people who are new to it don't think of, like... You know, you're really just using him to get uh, to, to to be your guide through it, in as much as uh, you can. Um, and uh, I was wavering about whether to have him have him leave uh, halfway through, uh, and or whether he would go off and kind of solve it in some clever way and come back. Which I think Matt Smith's doctor probably would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wavering about that. I, I I felt that there wasn't any other way to go with it than have him just kind of off and leave them to it. Um, but I think that that was kind of a bit rich for 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 some people who were uh, who were kind of working on it. But Stephen Stephen said, you know, no, absolutely have him have him leave. And have them, uh, you, you know, and sh- and she can tear a strip out of him at the end, and you don't need to resolve that. Just leave that. We can pick that up in Jamie's episode. So just write. It's a great scene that, and she does it brilliantly. Yeah, she, she does, she, doesn't she? Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, so what? 
Uh, what, so you're writing for, you're writing your first episode of Doctor Who with a Doctor that hasn't been on, on telly yet, so did you have material to go on of him in action, or, and how did, or how did Stephen sell the Doctor to you that you would be presenting to us? Well, I was writing it quite late, I think, as usual, uh, so I think I actually properly settled down to write it um, in the January and I was writing it, I remember as we were kind of finishing, finishing off filming Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell in York Minster. And that's when they started to send me through some scenes from Deep Breath. They sent me the restaurant scene and I think the scene in the alleyway with uh, Brian Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe they were also filming Listen, so I might have seen a bit of Listen. Um, and it seemed reasonably clear how he was going to do it. I mean, I, I think they said to me, just kind of, you know, Billy Connolly. And I did kind of, I, I did kind of, <laughs> I did kind of write it a bit like a serious Billy Connolly um, to begin with. Although that's not kind of, uh, that's not how he comes across. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's how I wrote it to begin with. Um, and uh, and this year, this year they said, you know, he's he's a bit more relaxed. He's solved the problem of whether he thinks he's a good man or not, and he's enjoying himself. And he's not afraid to make those kind of bigger speeches like Matt and David's doctor did. Yeah, you well, know, I, I I think last year they said keep him quite, keep him quite kind of terse and uh, and uh, don't give him too much to say. He's a he's a man of few words, but. I mean, he's a he's a real blabbermouth yeah, this year, isn't he? <laughs> so, well, because we touched on zygons there, and and it's a story that um, you know very boldly, I think. And you 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 were talking about you know how do we look at you know whether you can talk people out of evil deeds and and, and looking giving a perspective beyond the sort of tabloid headlines we we wrangle with and 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 all sorts of things about. What extremism is, and if because everyone, of course, thinks they're right. Of course, they do. Mm. So you, you in a, but the iconography in that 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 first episode is, you know, is quite blatant. So do do you like? Is it important to you to root Doctor Who into the issues of the day? Um, because you you know the Zygons having the you know the prisoner talking to camera and making the demands, and um, you have to say you know that this is a this is an extreme example of Zygonism, <laughs> and not all everyday Zygons are like this. So yeah. it's you know they're they're emotive things that you're dealing with, which I thought the story did brilliantly. Well, I think that um, I think that uh, if you're telling that kind of story, if I'm telling a story about how uh, you know twenty million Zygons ended up living on planet Earth, then I'd be almost irresponsible if I didn't acknowledge the fact that that that, that has certain analogies to to stuff that's going on at the moment. And I, I if 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 I pretended that I thought that human beings would react any differently, um, then then I'd be you know then I'd be a liar. Um, so I don't think I. In a way, I, in a way, I did set out thinking I'd like to 
I think I definitely set out thinking I'd like to write something about how just crazy and stupid everything seems at the moment. I mean, I think I was was definitely feeling uh, what Jack says in the in the tunnels. Just that everything seems to be going nuts nowadays, and it does. And uh, uh, everything seems to be so kind of um, equivocal. You know, nobody's right these days, and nobody's wrong, uh, and you can't. Um, and we see and talk about, I think, much more of the kind of webs of interconnectivity and kind of cause and effect and, um, and the, the kind of compromises of dealing with all of these various global issues that everybody has to, has to make. And it makes it very hard to kind of point at someone and say, look, they're the bad guys, or to point at someone else and say that they're the good guys. Um, and uh, I think I tried to reflect that. And I also, I didn't set out to say, okay, these guys are uh, ISIL or, or whatever, or any particular faction. Um, I think, incidentally, because they're a, a radicalised splinter group, they borrow some of the techniques of some of those groups, but um, they're not necessarily fighting for what uh, ISIL is, says it's fighting for. Um, and I think there are parallels with a lot of other situations like Israel and Palestine and uh, the kind of uh, US border debate and um, the immigration and kind of refugee uh, crisis in general. So I think, you know, I guess most obviously the kind of uh, the incidental symbolism seems to come out of... Um, uh, ISIL and kind of uh, Islamophobia, but uh, I didn't want, uh, I, I think it would just be silly to kind of say I'm writing that about this because it's really about a kind of broader thing and I think it, it was plot, if you'd have shown it five years ago it would have probably been fairly applicable or if you'd have shown it in 1975 it probably would have been as well because it's about, it's about general recurring things which tend to swing around every few years uh, and um, they seem to be in sharper focus now because we seem as a, a species to be forgetting the lessons of uh, the two horrible wars that we fought in the last century and thinking that it's perfectly fine to start saying disgusting things about uh, each other in public and in the press and start behaving in a disgusting way to um, our fellow human beings. And um, I think that that's part of what just the doctor off so much uh, that he feels he has to keep on doing this and um, that people refuse to learn the lessons of history really I mean I think it's you know that's something that, that exercises me that uh, how how great humanity could be if we as a species just learned just learned lessons of history and said, okay, we're not going to bother, we don't have to bother trying that out for ourselves, we don't have to bother being a load of absolute jerks, uh, because that hasn't worked particularly well, um, let's just uh, kind of accept that we should not be jerks to each other. And can drama and popular culture, it's an argument I have with myself, so I'm interested to see what you think as, as a writer of 
proper stuff. I'm talking about when I do stand-up comedy. I always think, well, if I do a joke that's about current affairs that makes people think as well as laugh, then that is somehow important. Whereas just making it, and I've got other friends of mine who are comics who go, no, the job is to make people laugh. Mm. Anything else is a bonus. Mm. You and your lofty ambitions. Do do you as a as a writer writing what is you know a, fa- a popular family drama? Um, do you feel that you're achieving something if you're if you're examining issues like that through through drama? Um, are you trying to change people's minds, or are you just trying to make people think, or does it just help you tell the story because it's got a a, a, a resonance like that? Um, I think it helps. It, it just helps tell the story. I'm not. Um, I think it's very kind of it's it's very kind of crass and stupid. I think to go into it and say, okay, I'm going to make it about issues. You know, I think I I think that that's that's quite ham fisted. But having said that, I think that um, y- you know, Doctor Who is a family show, and. Uh, it's intended for the widest possible audience and therefore your kind of primary audience does have to be kids I think um, and that's why that's why there are things like uh, Zygons masquerading as seven year olds and kind of <clears throat> you know them electrocuting people and turning them into kind of gigantic balls of hair <laughs> and uh, uh, and secret bases in schools and things like that. And, um, you know, I think that that's something that, that five-year-olds, seven-year-olds can really latch onto and, and get excited by and think about. Um, but also you're writing to 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds, um, so it's got to be slightly scarier and more challenging. And you're also writing for, for, for grown-ups. And if you're writing for grown-ups who don't just want to sit, sit there or go off and kind of um, make tea while, uh, while the show's on. You've, you've got to give them something to think about as well. And you've, you've also got to give the people who actually like to have a bit of something to think about in their drama, you've got to give them something as well. Um, and, you know, why not? If it's not... If, if by including slightly meatier things things that you're going to take away with you and discuss, and, and maybe even discuss with your children. Um, if I can do that whilst telling uh, an entertaining story which doesn't bore the hell out of the kids, then then why not? I mean, that keeps me interested doing it, and, and I hope it keeps people interested uh, watching it. And um, in a way, I think that that's what the purpose of drama is that's what uh, the purpose of art is I think in general is to is to throw out questions and raise possibilities um, and then the audience are free to kind of complete it in their own way in their own head if they want to and I think that's uh, that's probably why uh, the these these two dot two stories that I've done have had wildly different interpretations made of them. For both of them, I've seen uh, people who have accused me of being a kind of militant kind of Marxist and a disgusting kind of um, 
Donald Rumsfeld style, style conservative. Um, uh, within the same scene, within the same story. Uh, and I think that that's right because, uh, you know, I'm not presenting any of that. I am, I'm, I'm presenting what I think is a kind of discussion of the whole affair and, uh, and they're finishing it off. And if they think that, I, that I'm espousing a certain viewpoint, um, then I think that's probably how they're, how they're writing the narrative in their own heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I mean, maybe people are not... Um, uh, I mean, maybe that's, that's an unusual thing for a very popular or populist programme to do. Uh, to not uh, dot the i's and cross the t's, um, but I think it makes more impact if it doesn't. Well, and I think something that certainly made an impact, which I think will probably be, you know, I think your royalties from clip shows and documentaries about Doctor Who in the future will be secure because that that final scene where instead of bangs and flashes and explosions and all of that, you have your leading man deliver this extraordinary, um, dramatic, thought-provoking, intelligent uh, riposte to blowing everything up. Mm. Um, and you must, when you, when you looked at, uh, at that scene as it, as, it, as it was performed, you must have sat back with a feeling of job satisfaction. I mean, and, and how do you get to that point? Because it's long, I mean, I'm imagining it on the page, is unusually long dialogue and so when you're swimming through that where you know how do you know the right length to to make it and where to cut it down and was it shorter or longer and and how how you bounce that through because it's I think it's an amazing it's (coughs) when I made my other half watch when you've got you're watching this you know um well I mean and that and that and that scene did really kind of come out of a lot of discussion between me and Stephen I can't claim kind of sole credit for that at all um but uh, I think it did. It did seem very long when I first wrote it. Um, the, the first draft of it, yeah, you, you know, you're used to you're used to pay uh, to lines of dialogue on a script being, you know, about a centimetre, <laughs> about a centimetre long, or uh, certainly not going into more than um, two or three lines. Uh, you, you know, two or three uh, yeah, sentences or whatever. Uh, and looking very small on the page. You, you know, ideally on a page of, of scripts, you normally have two scenes, probably. Two or three scenes, maybe. Um, I think that's usually kind of what I would average on an action thing. But I think the this speech from the Doctor, it just went all the way down one page and halfway down another page and then somebody said one <laughs> one <laughs> sentence and then he was off again. I mean, you, you, you break it up with, you know, <laughs> he walks over there and he looks at Clara. Um, but it was, it was extremely, extremely long and unusually long. I don't think I've ever written such a long speech uh, for, for anyone to perform on... On, on, on screen before and it, and it was longer it was longer um, and I'm glad they I'm glad they kind of trimmed it trimmed it back a little bit uh, towards the beginning of the scene um, yeah so I, I was worried about it I was worried about it uh, I mean so much so really that it didn't kind of strike me what 
an affecting scene it is until I'd watched it with other people because I was much more worried about it being you, the, about the expectation of the, the kind of climax of it people expecting a punch up and bangs and bombs and guns uh, and, and what, they, what they get is this guy in a room uh, you know, spouting a load of hip and <laughs> 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 talking someone out of it and uh, I was uh, I was nervous about that, and I was nervous about such a such a long dialogue scene, such a long monologue scene. Um, so I didn't really kind of begin to appreciate really what a good scene it is and what a kind of towering uh, performance it, it it was until I'd uh, until I'd seen it with eyes that weren't anything to do with uh, you know concern about how it, you know, about whether it worked or not. Sure. But, I, but I, it's, it's absolutely kind of, I can see that it's tremendous. Um, well, look, Doctor Who aside, tell me about you, Peter. How do you, how do you, you know, what's the path to being a, a Doctor Who writer? Was, was, was it always going to be writing that, that you'd wanted to do from an early age? I think it was, uh, uh, in retrospect, it, yes, probably, but um, I think I'd just... I think I just wanted to be on telly. I think I just wanted to be to to be able to 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 go down the BBC and and spend time with uh, with Rogan and the two Ronnies <laughs> and Doctor Who uh, in the BBC canteen and and stuff. So <laughs> uh, and initially, I think I really wanted to be an actor. Um, and I'm, I always say, I mean, I th I'm, I'm not such a bad actor, really, although I haven't done it for a while. I always think I'm a better actor than I am a writer. And um, I did a lot of that when I was growing up and when I was at university. And many of my kind of associates from university have gone on to be extremely successful actors. But uh, when I finished, I, I just didn't do it. I, I didn't apply to drama school. I didn't try and get myself an agent. I just, uh, instead, I just, um, I just hunkered down in a room and started writing stuff. Uh, and I can't remember ever really having made a conscious decision to do that. Um, and I carried on doing it. I didn't really ever get a proper job. Um, so I carried on doing it throughout my 20s being really kind of extremely, extremely short of money um, and not being particularly successful. And I did that for what felt like an eternity before I started earning bits and pieces uh, of money. Um, I got to a stage when I was about 20, oh, I don't know, 26 or 27 maybe, where um, I think there had been kind of one of the periodic crashes and work was very thin on the ground and I hadn't really done a hell of a lot of stuff. Uh, it was 2003 actually, so I would have been... Yeah, I would have been 27. Um, and I was just kind of completely at the end of... Uh, I had no work. I've been out of university for a long time, doing nothing to put on my CV. And I remember I came back to London and applying desperately for, for any sort of job at all. 
and um, and I was far too kind of qualified to get jobs sweeping floors at McDonald's or uh, uh, and I was I was under experienced to get jobs as a kind of script editor or a writer or anything like that and I, and I just realised that <laughs> my my degree and everything my education counted for nothing and I was completely unemployable um, and so I thought <laughs> you know you've got to make a go of this mate because otherwise you're screwed um, and I think I, I, I think to be honest that that's that that's a big part of um, of being able to make a success of it I think um, I backed myself into such a tight corner that I, I, I literally had no other option than to uh, to make my living as a writer uh, so that's how I did it <laughs> that's, that's my handy career tip but how did you get, because obviously, you know, any, any artist is beholden to, um, if not the patronage of others, the facilitation of others. So, so you know, how did you, how did you break through to a point where you were, you know, people were coming to you to write stuff for them? Um, I guess I did. I, I guess I've had a number of uh, people who've been... Uh, inexplicably keen on... Stuff that 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 I've written over the years, and they've helped, and they've been champions. Um, and so, you know, I owe a lot of uh, gratitude to them. Um, but really, having said that, there's um, there's some kind of limit, or there's some kind of tipping point um, before which people just won't take a punt on you. There are kind of there are individuals within any business who know you and like you, but if they're trying to sell you to other people, there has to be a kind of groundswell of opinion, of because a lot of a lot of people don't trust their own judgment, um, and I don't necessarily blame them for that because often they're kind of uh, they're answerable to a lot of uh, other people and they're answerable to. Uh, to, to, to people who, who are spending their money on doing these things. Um, there has to be a groundswell of opinion generally thinking that you're good or an okay prospect for people to suddenly realise that they like your work or to be able to say that they like your work. Um, and I guess I've been around for, for a while and proved myself, you know, f friendly and easy to work with and, you know, dependably okay, if often a little late. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I've, I, I think I've been doing that kind of, with what to me felt like very little success for a few years, but then uh, eventually I started kind of appearing on people's lists, I think. And I suppose since, um, I've, I've really kind of felt secure in doing it since I got uh, the kind of lead writing job on Wallander, which isn't long ago actually. I mean, it's not uh, about five or six years ago. Uh -huh. It doesn't feel very long ago. Um, and before that, it was all a lot bittier. Um, I mean, I don't even feel, I don't feel entirely secure now. Wow. There you go. That's Freelance kind of curse, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and you, but you did. I mean, we're, we're talking now in, in London, but we've, there was a, a, a distinct possibility that this interview would be done by Skype because you are you are not a resident in the UK. Uh, no, I'm not. 
although I am for tax purposes <laughs> the inland revenue. Um, now I live in Sweden. My wife is my wife's Swedish, and uh, uh, and so are my kids uh, half Swedish, and um, we just moved out there. We moved out there about eight or nine years ago, really without the thought that we would stay there for more than a few months, but. Uh, uh, it just it just happened. She, she she started getting more work out there, and I I'm in theory quite portable, so uh, that's where we've ended up. And I quite I, I quite like it. I quite like it. It's a nice. Uh, it seems it's a very kind of civilized place. It's um, I like a lot of, about it in terms of how it treats its citizens and um, uh, how good it is to. Uh, uh, children and uh, women and um, underrepresented groups in general. Uh, although at the moment it does seem to be going going the way of a lot of Europe and shutting its borders and being filled up with racists. But there you go. But it's a it's a very <laughs> as far as kind of human civilization goes, it's it's, it's quite a kind of good one, I think. Um, but it's nice to be back here as well. I like coming back here. When I when I do come back. Well, I've uh, I've used more of your time than I said I would, as I always do. You're always late with deadlines. Well. I always I always go too long <laughs> with questions. So what what else what else is in store for you? What what uh, are you looking forward to doing? And do you have any more um, ambitions to, towards Doctor Who as well? Well, I'd always like to do more Doctor Who. I think I think for as long as they'll have me, I'd like to keep on doing that. Um, Oh, what have I, well, I've got, I've got a few different things coming up. I've, uh, the, the fourth and final series of Wallander will be on at some point over the next six months, I would think. Um, and I'm quite pleased with that. And I'm doing a new uh, series about, like, the globalisation of organised crime called McMafia, which is what I'm here for at the moment. Um, and a couple of other things in... in Fairly early stages, uh, but I but I but I think I've I've done a lot of adaptations recently, and they're hard to kind of turn down because I've, every time I think I'm not going to do any more adaptations, I get offered something like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, um, or any of the other adaptations. I can't tell you <laughs> what they are that I'm supposed to be doing at the moment. It gets very hard to turn them down, um, but. Uh, I think I'm really going to have to get quite strict with myself and um, and say that I'm going to do more more of my own stuff over the next uh, couple of years and see how that goes. Because otherwise, I think I'll just coast a bit doing uh, doing adaptations of other people's very very good books. And I've got a thousand page long novel about the sea, which I keep on kidding myself I'm I'm going to write one day. Um, try and prove to myself that I'm a that I'm a respectable writer and just not some kind of appalling old TV hack. Uh, so maybe I'll do that one day. Well, bless you. well, I mean, I have to say you d you didn't only just say nice things about who's round and then um, uh, you know before you were commissioned to do Doctor Who, you very kindly um, before we'd even met sent me a message offering that I come and watch Kill the Moon with you in London, which I couldn't do because I was I was stuck in Manchester. So I have to say. Um, for the kindness you extended to this stranger, uh, I'm very grateful. 
Um, well, uh, thank you. Because uh, you're obviously just a very nice person. Yeah, um, which is I do deep. a very good impression, but I, you know, I get my I get my black cape on, and go stalking, stalking the night, and uh, uh, causing mayhem well, in um, secret. Um, so uh, this well, is my way of, uh, uh, you know. Seeming like a nice person. Well, I'm very, very, very fortunate that I benefit from exposure <laughs> to your Dr. Jekyll and your Mr. Hyde. Uh, uh, well, look, um, you've given me your time for oh, what, uh, an Americano and a pan of chocolate. Um, so um, we ask the listeners, um, as they've paid nothing and you've received nothing, uh, to donate to a charity of your choice, Peter, which is? Um, I think it's probably Arts Emergency dot org which is a charity who was uh, which was set up i think by uh, a friend of mine called Josie Long and others which is to uh, to basically encourage kids from less privileged backgrounds um, to try and either go into careers in the arts in its broadest possible uh, definition or to or to study that, and although it's not really, in a way, it doesn't seem like a very urgent issue. I uh, I think uh, I think it is because I think we've become we've become an intensely non socially mobile society over the last uh, you know. So, I mean, since I was since I was a kid, and since since we were kids, and uh, uh, our parents' generation, I think had much more access to breaking out of uh, poverty and break, breaking out of their background than children today do. And part of that is uh, the ability to, to say, uh, I, don't, I don't want to do a job which just kind of pays the bills. I want to, uh, I want to do something creative. Um, nowadays, we've, uh, it's very, very hard to get into any of those businesses uh, unless you have... Um, unless you have contacts in them or you have a substantial kind of income already. And I think that's very unfair and I think it, I, I think it, it's really kind of up the cultural life of the country and, and by, and by extension, the, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the kind of public, the public life and, uh, and uh, character of the country. So, this charity, in its uh, in its own small way, tries to kind of give those children the kind of leg up that you might get if you had been to Eton or something. Uh, so I think it's very, a very worthy cause, well, because otherwise, uh, otherwise in in twenty or twenty five years, the people the people who who might be in a position to write for Doctor Who or to make Doctor Who might come from a very, very narrow band of experience and they might be the people making TV and films and uh, uh, I think we'll be in a position where kind of culture no longer really reflects real life in a way that uh, politics doesn't seem to at the moment either. There we go. Who's the thought? Banging his drum. <laughs> and um, this podcast was convened to talk about uh, 50 years of Doctor Who, it's now 52. Uh, this week it is 52 as we yes. speak. So, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there, Peter? Be nice to each other. <laughs> Couldn't wish for a better message, Peter Harris. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Bless you. Oh, that was right. Yeah, that was great. That was lovely. Oh, Fifty minutes. My goodness.
thanks to Peter, he's a genuinely lovely fellow. Um, his charity is arts, as he said, artsemergency.org. Artsemergency.org. But it's A R T S dash emergency.org. So the dash between arts and emergency. That's artsemergency.org. Uh, and if you can uh, donate to them, that would be lovely. They're also on Twitter at Arts Emergency, no dash, or one word. Uh, I'm on Twitter too, at Toby Haydock, uh, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. Um, and if you keep following Who's Round, there'll be another one hopefully next week. Uh, kudos to Ian Atkins, above and beyond anybody else, because for the whole of 2015, there's been a Who's Round out every week. Uh, well done him, because it's... Uh, in addition to all his extra duties that he's actually properly paid for by Big Finish. This is something that uh, he's very much given uh, uh, you know, extra time to to ensure that you get a regular dose every week. So thank you to Ian. Happy New Year to him and to you. Here's to 2016, full of all sorts of people that I've talked to about Doctor Who, from a lighting technician from the McCoy era to a 92-year-old actor that's met Ivan Novello. Um, and all sorts of other people. It will be fun. I hope you can join me for the ride. In the meantime, all the best. Uh, no trailer for next week because I haven't decided who's on and I'm, I'm on holiday. Um, all the best. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Diary of River Song. River? Uh, Professor River Song? And I assure you, Colonel, gender is a relatively unimportant construct when accompanied by one of these. I said. In the engines! Are those escape shuttles? For the lucky ones? Party's over, I'm afraid. Them. He is Time Lord. He is why we can be here. What? Override some of these drive systems. There! You brought the TARDIS! I can't hear what you're saying! The signal is breaking up! Then boost it, Doctor! Help is on its way! Oh, good, good! What are you doing? Blowing you up! What? Bow on the ground! You with a bow tie! Pipe down! I'll get to you in a moment. And there you are, Mr. Colt. How many did I have left in the chamber? No, River, come on, we can still go back to the ship. And let everyone here die? Well, perhaps we can't save them. Some events in the universe are fixed points. Uh, fixed points? Not with me around. Now I'm up close and personal, how does it compare? Too much? Big finish. We love stories.